Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Abhishek Harihar, the Assistant Director of Panthera's Tiger Program. Panthera is the only organization in the world that is devoted exclusively to the conservation of the world's 40 wildcat species and their ecosystems. In today's episode, Abhishek will take us into the habitats of tigers in Asia. He'll talk about tigers as a species, the risks they face today, and why protecting the tiger population is of vital importance. Abhishek also will share with us the insights on the technology behind its work, namely the use of camera traps. Cameras equipped with infrared triggers that allow photos of animals to be taken without humans present. The use of camera traps goes far beyond taking pictures for all of us to see. The images from camera traps provide critical insights to scientists in studying wildlife and the habitats in which they live. Abhishek, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thanks so much for having me on this. Abhishek, before we talk about your current work, talk to us or tell us a little bit about your background and why you devote your career to studying and protecting wildlife, tigers in particular. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I had, um, for as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in wildlife. Uh, my parents keep reminding me that uh, every now and then that the first word that I uttered was actually halli, which is a vernacular for the common house gecko. Uh, so yeah, so my memories of observing wildlife go back really, really long. And, you know, I used to go bird watching um, and I used to live on a coastal city in uh, southern India. So we used to go out in the nights looking for nesting sea turtles along uh, the coast as well. So yeah, that kind of continued through schooling. And so then I went ahead did a bachelor's in zoology, a master's in wildlife biology. And it was when I was doing my master's that uh, I had the opportunity to start monitoring a population of tigers uh, in Northern India. And that was my first experience working with tigers in particular, and actually, you know, serious wildlife uh, research as well. Yeah, so that that's how I, I got in and that got me hooked. I was stuck to the place for about 13 years, and did my PhD and, that, that's me. So you're the, the assistant director for the Tiger program and clearly are an expert in tigers. So talk to us a little bit about tigers as a, as a species and, and why is it such an iconic species and why is it so important that we protect it, not just today, but for well into the future? So tigers, much like many large carnivores uh, in, in you know most human cultures, we kind of tend to uh, revere or even worship the things that we fear. So tigers certainly make it on top of that list. So I think that way tigers have a very strong cultural connect with uh, a lot of people across uh, Tiger Range and even outside of Tiger Range. So that makes tigers very iconic uh, in many ways. Uh, but also, you know, tigers are not just these large, fierce, big animals that are on top of food chains. Their presence in the forests also kind of signifies the existence of a healthy, functioning ecosystem much like so many of the large cats and large carnivores that we have. Uh, again, the cultural connect that they have with communities and uh, you know that live close to them, live further away from them, uh, make them a really charismatic flagship species or an umbrella species as such. Uh, and it also makes communicating conservation very easy because people in cities have a strong connect with a tiger when you show them a photo of it. So when you tell them that you need to save tiger and therefore it saves the forest, it, it makes a very easy connect. I think that that's uh, one of the most uh, 
easiest ways to sell conservation as well. So you use a very important phrase that I, I want to follow up on and maybe go a little deeper. You said that tigers exist at the top of the food chain. What do you, you know, educate someone like me, educate the uneducated. What does that mean? And, and why is it important that, you know, the apex predators like the tigers are, are preserved because of that, that role of being on the, the top of the food chain? Yeah, so all of the ecosystems that we have around us are all very intricately connected to each other. So all the animals that live within the ecosystems are really intricately connected to each other. And, you know, and especially the large carnivores that pretty much sit on top of these food chains as such are the ones that in many cases uh, even control and regulate some of the other species uh, that live. For instance, you know, losing tigers in some protected areas or some areas uh, could have other smaller carnivores go out of hand. It could just make uh, other species uh, compete with each other in ways that could result in very, very messy ecosystems and food webs. And that could affect the way the ecosystem functions itself. You know, for an example, um, there's a lot of research from the Northern uh, American regions, which talks about how wolves, when they're lost, or wolves, when they come back, can even change rivers. So large carnivores and carnivores in general, do a lot in terms of maintaining not just, you know, other prey that are found in the region, but the entire habitat as such. And I know this is, you know, just from my, my work and my experience with Panthera in the Pantanal region of Brazil with the jaguars and, and, the, and the, actual, the important role that jaguars play in, in helping actually keep disease down in that area by, yes. you know, taking down animals that are, you know, either diseased or carrying disease or whatever, and keeping those away from humans, therefore keeping us healthy. Does that same role apply to, to tigers in the forests in Asia? Oh, for certain, yes. I think uh, the very fact that we are in this pandemic right now, um, you know, started off with a zoonotic disease breaking out of some forest somewhere. And it kind of also just shows us that, you know, how how vulnerable we are as a species if, you know, we don't take care of the ecosystem around us. And tigers do exactly that. You know, tigers are a symbol of healthy ecosystems. Uh, so as I said, when, when a forest has a healthy tiger population, you can be sure that the prey that support tigers are doing well, the vegetation that supports the prey are doing well. Uh, and such functional forests provide many ecosystem services that go beyond just uh, stopping a spillover of zoonotic diseases. They they give us, you know, clean air, clean water, carbon sequestration, and potentially buffer us from impacts of climate change. So, yeah, so obviously, you know, there's a lot more that tigers do than just being uh, a pretty animal in a forest. Yet, despite all those benefits, and despite this, as you said, kind of this iconic nature of the species that everyone loves to see, tigers are considered to be, quote, endangered, unquote. I mean, that's their official designation by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. What does that term endangered mean? And why are tigers considered to be endangered? Yeah, so the IUCN has a system of um, ranking species uh, based on how threatened or how, how close to extinction they are. So this is, you know, it's called the red list. And the red list ranks species based on their risk or their, their proximity to you know, being extinct in the wild. So endangered is 
two steps removed from being extinct. Uh, the next step is critically endangered, and then there's extinct in the wild. So, you know, tigers are actually just hanging in there by being endangered. So it is, it is not the best place you'd want a species to be on that uh, scale. So although, you know, tigers are charismatic, they receive a lot of public attention. The problem with tigers is also they've come into conflict with humans for, for centuries, uh, for many, many centuries. So although that's kind of unverified, it's believed that um, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, around early 1900s, there were probably about 100,000 tigers living across most of uh, most of Asia. Uh, but now we have about 4,000 wild tigers, and they only occupy about 6% of their historic range. So there's obviously, they've gone through a major crash. While a lot of the initial loss of uh, populations could have been because of um, change in uh, the forest loss, a uh, lot of forest loss back in the day. But, you know, much later it was you know, tigers being hunted for sport, uh, especially during the colonial periods in South and Southeast Asia. And later, and, you know, even presently, uh, to supply a market for traditional Chinese medicine that's, you know, literally driving tigers to extinction uh, nowadays. And yeah, and you know, over the time we've also lost significant populations or subspecies. So places like Bali, Java, in Indonesia have, don't have tigers anymore. Uh, the same is with tigers in the Caspian region. And tigers used to come up almost to the edge of you know Europe as such, uh, but yeah, we don't have them in these places anymore. So yeah, so tigers are endangered. They still are endangered, although some parts of tiger range are doing better than others. Correct me if I'm wrong. I once listened to a, a presentation that Alan Rabinowitz, who was the, the co-founder of, of Panthera, gave about tigers. And I believe he said that if you know left to their own devices, meaning if, you know, if tigers weren't hunted, if their range areas were intact, that they, they would be just fine. Like they actually reproduce quite easily. Um, and it would, it's actually pretty easy. It would be pretty easy to grow the, the tiger population again, if again, we respected their habitats, we weren't hunting them, so on and so forth. Is, is that, is my memory correct or am I wrong in that assessment? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So tigers, tigers that way, uh, they're actually quite an easy species that way. You just give them the right conditions, which basically means a nice protected habitat where, you don't lose individuals to unnatural mortality, like being poached or being hit by a vehicle or being killed because they've killed livestock. Uh, so if you give them a place that's nice and safe, they breed really easily uh, and they breed really quickly as well. So yeah, they're unlike several other uh, species that you know uh, have very peculiar mating behavior or something like that where even breeding is difficult, but tigers are easy. Tigers are that way much easier. So if you and I were out in a hike, going on a hike somewhere, uh, and we came across a tiger, what, what, what would happen? Would we run? I, I, would the tiger run? Would, would the tiger run at us? What would happen? Yeah, I, I, would, I would usually say that we've kind of, yeah, we just have to wait to see what the tiger does. <laughs> uh, because certainly you can't outrun a tiger. So yeah, just wait and watch and you'll be safe and probably escape. In fact, actually, that kind of brings me back to a you know memory that I yeah, my, my first year of field work uh, in Northern India, and this was me as a fresh master's student uh, working on, you know, working on tigers. I went, um, I went up a river stream uh, early in the morning and we'd seen these really fresh tiger pug marks on the riverbed. 
and kind of looked around and you knew there was a tiger somewhere close by uh, because there were crows trying to come and settle down on the bushes nearby. Uh, but, you know, you could see that they weren't actually coming down at all because they'd probably be shooed away by the tiger or something. So there was a tiger really close by. Um, so anyway, we decided that we won't disturb the tiger then or we won't try to check it out. So we went upstream. We were, in fact, changing cameras that day. So we we picked up some cameras, changed them, and then we were coming back down. So this is me and my field assistant. And when we came back to the same spot, which would have been about mid uh, midday, the place was really quiet. So the two of us got really excited and we thought, okay, let's go and check out this place where we thought the tiger would have been. So we, we literally broke through some branches and walked right into uh, a thicket. Uh, and we actually found a, you know, the leg of a, of a dead deer. So we were really excited. And, you know, as a, as a master student who's collecting data, everything is a data point. So I got really excited. I pulled out my GPS and this is back in early 2000 uh, and GPSs weren't sophisticated. So you'd have to turn on your GPS and stand there and wait till, you know, each of the satellite icons kind of uh, lit up and finally made connection with all the satellites. So I was standing there and waiting and trying to wait for the signal to come on. And just between me and the leg of the deer in front of me and the grass in front of me, my field assistant noticed something move in a very you know peculiar way. Uh, so we kind of stood there just looking straight out. And a little later, we had this tiger just literally stand up in front of us and kind of give us the look. So I think the tigress was, I think it was a female. I still don't know uh, which individual it was. Uh, but I think she was pretty full. Uh, her belly was full. So she just um, looked at us for a while. Uh, we turned around and yeah, I'm, I'm still here. But yeah, I guess I guess you should kind of be lucky to kind of survive an encounter like that. But I also, I also think um, in, in general, tigers don't, don't mean harm. Uh, it's just if you get in, get in their way really bad. I'm glad the tigress... Uh... Or a tiger had a full belly, Abhishek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I was a very skin and scrawny person. So probably the tiger looked at me and but, said, but, yeah, is that worth it, right? Nothing, I mean, nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to see here. <laughs> so you, you did a little bit of this uh, in that story, but just take us a little bit more into the, the habitats in which tigers live. And I know that it's, it's varied. I mean, there's, you know, anywhere yeah. from India up into the Korean peninsula and potentially Siberia, but just, Give a sense. Give us a sense of the world that the, in which the tigers live. Tigers actually span a huge range of habitats. Uh, you know, you find them in the uh, wet equatorial forests in Indonesia, uh, where you know the sun hardly reaches the forest floor. Uh, you find them in dry, semi-arid forests in Western India, where summer temperatures can go up to fifty degrees uh, centigrade, which is, I think, about one hundred twenty Fahrenheit in Korean Peninsula and Eastern China and Russian Far East, uh, winter temperatures go down to about minus 30 degrees centigrade, which is I think about minus 20 Fahrenheit. So you can see tigers literally span, you know, uh, a huge range of habitats. And they're also found in the world's tallest grasslands. They're also found in the world's largest mangroves. They're also high up in the Himalayas, up to you know about 4,000 meters in altitude. So yeah, so tigers can actually survive in in a whole range of uh, habitats. But 
But I think what's what's most important, what's common between all of these habitats is the fact that they have good assemblage of ungulate uh, prey or deer species. And I think that's what is kind of core to a tiger habitat. It's a place that has good deer, uh, good deer to feast on. So deer is the, the prey of choice of a tiger? Yeah, deer is the prey of choice of tiger. And usually it's the larger of the deer that, that really supports the population. So uh, a tiger would kill something more or less equal to its own body weight. Um, so something that's about 200 kilograms in weight. So some of the larger deer probably really support tiger populations. So in your in your work, and, and I assume, Abhishek, your your work has crossed into a number of these these areas that we've talked about, correct? Yeah. You you use this really cool technology called the camera trap. Uh, yeah. and you'd you'd referenced it before that you were, you know, before you saw the tiger, you were you were changing out the cameras. Tell us about the camera trap as a technology and why it is so important to your work and frankly, ultimately to the hopefully uh, not only protection, but growing ability to grow the population of the tigers. Yeah, I think I think cameras um, have become a tiger biologist's most important uh, toolkit or equipment right now. So since about the 1990s, uh, cameras have become very useful for studying tigers. Uh, and actually, a lot of this is because tigers are, you know, make it easy to use cameras as well. The first thing is, you know, tigers are, uh, the stripes on a tiger are unique. Uh, every individual can be told apart. Uh, it's like much like our fingerprints. So when you get a nice clear image of a tiger, you can actually tell an individual from that. The other thing about tigers is they're a creature of habit. So they often walk the same paths again and again and again, and much like most large cats, uh, jaguars inclusive. So it really makes it easy to you know just go strap up some cameras on a tree and, and get some photos. So the cameras that we use, you know, as you mentioned, the, the really really cool piece of technology, uh, but actually it's pretty simple. So it's you know it's just basically a motion sensor, something similar to the ones that you have uh, when you you know walk past these doors that open by themselves, or you know the ones that you have at these faucets in public restrooms. So basically it's a motion sensor that's just hooked onto a camera. So when anything walks in front of that motion sensor. Um, you get a you get a nice photograph if you place the camera well, uh, but yeah. But the good thing about cameras is they've been um, they've been really really helpful in not just telling you where tigers are, but it tells you how many tigers there are. Uh, and and panthera actually we we make our own camera traps. So unlike se several of the commercially available cameras that are out there, uh, the cameras that we've developed, uh, you know, thanks to uh, you know uh, an engineer and colleague of ours called Chris Klein, who makes these cameras. Uh, he's worked really closely with all of us biologists to make sure that those cameras work the best for us. So, you know, they're optimized to click photos in hot or arid landscapes as well. And they still survive the cold temperatures. They do well in humidity. They do well in the wet rainforest as well. So, yeah, so, you know, the Panther cams uh, have been a have been a really uh, big addition, and it's a big part of what we do within the organization as well. Uh, the other thing that you know Chris and his team have also done is to make sure that these cameras are really friendly for us doing fieldwork. Uh, you know, many of these forests where tigers live are pretty remote; uh, they're not really easy to access on on vehicle or something like that. So you'd have to walk in, and some sites take 
you know, few days of walking to get to the place where you want to put up the camera. So these cameras have to be light. They have to be easy to fit into your backpack and you still have to walk for days. Uh, and yeah, and you can't, once you put out a camera in a place that you can't really go back too often to check how the batteries are doing or how the memory cards are doing. So these, these cameras that we now use, you know, have really long battery life. They have good memory capacity and yeah, so it makes, it makes putting out cameras quite easy. And I think the best part about camera trapping is you put the cameras out, not knowing what you're going to get. And then when you, you know, go and get back your cameras and sit with them again uh, in front of a computer. It's, it's amazing. You get so many cool photos of tigers of so many other animals and it's, yeah. So it's always, it's always fantastic to do that. So how often do you go and change the, the cameras out? I mean, are we talking hours, days, weeks? What is it? Yeah. So it depends on places. So in, in uh, some of the places that I've worked in Northern India and Eastern India as well, they're much more accessible. So you could change them out within days. You know, it doesn't take that long. But there are some sites that we work in in, uh, in Indonesia and in Malaysia where you know just getting to the core uh, tiger habitat to even place a camera could, could take a day's walk or, or maybe a two-day walk. So in such cases, we kind of tend to just leave them there for a few months, uh, usually for about three to six months if, yeah, we need to and then go to treat them yeah but that depends on places yeah and, and for those who are listening that are interested um on the on the website where we have abishak's interview we actually have a few pictures of the panthera cameras uh so you can see what they look like and in how they're they're strapped to the trees so we encourage you to take a look at this really cool technology abishak how do you you mentioned that you use these to uh, understand how many you know, the, the size of the tiger population, how many tigers are out there. And, and I assume that you can do that because the, as you said, the tigers have a very distinctive pattern in terms of their stripes, but, but how does that work? I mean, is there like modeling, you know, mathematical modeling that's then projected out based on how often you're seeing the tigers? Give us a sense as to the sure. kind of the science behind counting the tigers. Yeah, so counting tigers is is quite a job. <laughs> it seems easy that you can just put out a camera out on a trail and get a photo and you know your individual. That's that's the first part done. Uh, but yeah, as you said, yes, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of maths and stats that goes into it. That uh, yeah, is is quite sophisticated. So let me just kind of step you through what we would do when we go out to estimate tiger numbers. So. The first thing that we do is kind of decide on which area you want to put out cameras. And usually these areas are large. So about 1,500 square kilometers. That's about, I think it'd be roughly twice the size of New York City. Uh, and in, in a place of you know, that size, you'd put out something like about 100, uh, 100 odd camera stations. Uh, and each of these camera stations, you'd put up two cameras because each side of the tiger, the left and the right flank, are actually quite unique. So you can't just take a photo of one side of the tiger and expect to know the individual fully. You need both. So we put up two cameras on the trail, uh, one facing each other. And, you know, these cameras then do their job. And when we get the photographs, uh, we're able to identify the individual uh, and we know where it's been photographed because we know where we place the cameras. We know where the photograph came from. And by looking at, you know, the spatial information of where the individual was photographed and where it's photographed in the next three days or five days or, you know, within the month, 
um, you kind of build this little uh, history of captures um, where all you know these individuals have been captured and where each individual has been captured at you know unique locations as well. And then we use some sophisticated statistics. Uh, it's a class of uh, models that we call spatial capture recapture models. Uh, but basically what it does, it uses the capture and the recapture information of individuals uh, and also you know, looks at how far they were from the first capture and the subsequent captures and then uses all this in, uh, in, a, in a model and then you know, we're able to tell how many individuals there are. It also tells you how many you've missed when you were putting out cameras. So you don't always photograph all the individuals in your area because you know tigers are sneaky as well. So they're not going to be uh, on those trails that you put cameras out. So yeah, so that that uh, you know that's a that's a very important step. So it's not just us getting photos and counting the number of individuals, but it's also having to use some of the maths instead to uh, yeah tell you how many they really are. Does Panthera have like a internal in-house library of all the all the pictures that all these traps have taken over time what we do, do you, what do you yeah. do with the i guess let me ask you what yeah. do you do with the pictures when you're you know when you're done yeah i think um multiple things happen <laughs> so i guess uh when we uh when you look at um you know the data sets that we accumulate uh year after year especially places that we work for multiple years they kind of give us a lot more information than just tiger numbers. So I think that's that's one of the things that you know makes camera trapping so useful is once you know your individual, you can track it in time. And if you've accumulated enough years of data of tiger images, you know how long individuals have been in a certain place, how long uh, you know how long they've been there. And if it's a female, if you get the right images, you could even see how often She's littered, had cubs. If you're lucky, you can even tell how many cubs she's had. Uh, so yeah, so I think that way, you know, uh, having and holding on to many years of data that we gather is very useful because it tells us a lot more about tigers than just the numbers that we that we would get from one round of camera trapping. Uh, but yeah, but storing all of this information is quite a task in itself. Uh, so we. Uh, in Panthera have uh, been developing uh, a system of uh, cataloging all of this information and also being able to share and communicate within the organization of all the data sets that we have. So we have a system that we call the Panthera Integrated Data System that's being developed right now and in use in some of our sites and we're slowly expanding as well. But that really helps us catalog this information. So I may not have all the questions or all the answers to the work that I'm doing right now. But, you know, a few years down the line, someone else could come look at this catalog, pick it up and hopefully answer brand new questions that I didn't think about, or I just didn't have enough information to, you know, get to at that point. So, yeah, so storing the information is quite a job, but doing that is amazing because you can really revisit a lot of questions, revisit and find new patterns as well. Do you just out of curiosity, do you obviously the, the target is the tigers and some of their prey, but do you catch things you don't necessarily want to see on these cameras, namely poachers tracking the tigers? Yeah, that happens as well. A lot of the images that we gather also gives us an idea of what threats they probably are at these sites. 
So, uh, you know, poachers being captured on cameras does happen. Well, I wouldn't say too often, but in some places more often than you'd, you'd like it. And what's also important is, you know, you just don't get the image and shelve it, but then you should be able to act and react on that piece of information that you get. So in fact, actually at Panthera, we've developed a camera, which we call the poacher cam. So it's a, it's a camera that not just clicks an image of anybody walking past, but it can also you know run a quick algorithm in the back and tell you if that image is a human or a wild animal. And if it's a human image, which is basically the longer, you know, the ratio being more height than width, that image gets sent over a GSM network to a law enforcement unit. And, you know, the moment they get that image uh, on their mobile phones or on their emails, they can have a quick look at it, see what the threat is and kind of assess the level of threat there is and send out a response unit to, you know, go and capture the poacher. And, you know, this technology has been developed again by Chris and his team, and it's being used on site and it's extremely useful. And we've had quite a few cases where these cameras have helped us, you know, really catch and stop poachers. I have to ask, why would anyone want to poach a tiger? Uh, the I think the answer is uh, there's just too many reasons not to poach a tiger, unfortunately. So tigers are extremely valuable um, commercially, uh, especially in the legal uh, black market. Uh, pretty much every part of a tiger is um, sold, is in demand. Uh, so especially in the traditional Chinese uh, medicine uh, market. So I think there was a National Geographic article a few years ago, which called tigers, uh, which referred to tigers as walking gold uh, because they, you know, they're worth a fortune in the black market. Uh, so the bones, for instance, they are, you know, a critical ingredient of a lot of the traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, they bones and all the other body parts can often fetch up to about seventy thousand dollars per individual, um, and you know that's just the internal organs and bones. But the skin, additionally, can again fetch another thirty-five thousand uh, dollars in the luxury product market. So. You know, there's a lot of money to be made out of, uh, out of killing a tiger. And not just because of the demand, but also with local communities, sometimes this can be a quick way to make some money. You know, some of the conversations we've had with, you know, with rangers in South Africa, um, and, you know, some of those we've interviewed in this podcast, they indicate that really the driving force for the poaching in, in South Africa, which is heavily focused on poaching the rhinos and the, the elephants, is largely driven by the the socioeconomic challenges of the region that you know especially now with covid jobs are evaporating and in communities and families are under extreme stress and there's no other way to earn money and so unfortunately as you said poaching is the kind of the quick way to make money is that is it that same dynamic that's in play in the in Asia around the, the tiger habitats? Yeah, I think I think that is to some extent. Uh, but also, you know, the same is the case with uh, probably rhinos and elephants as well in, in Africa. The demand has become so high in most of the consumer countries, which is mostly uh, China and a few other nations in Southeast Asia, uh, that you now have pretty much specialized groups of poachers who even you know cross boundaries and and go and poach uh, tigers so 
you know, I think it's a mix of both economic conditions at the site that drive people towards poaching, but also the demands have become so high that I think it's a mix of, you know, both things happening. Uh, you know, just to give you an example, in uh, in India, in some parts of India, you'd have uh, tigers that just go and kill livestock by, you know, by mistake or be too close to human habitation, so they end up killing livestock. So in retaliation, you know, the farmer or the livestock owner might just, you know, poison the tiger, but that finds its way into the market as well. And, you know, so, yeah, you could have multiple reasons through which they, they kind of get in into the illegal market. In light of the, you know, the, the threat of poaching, in light of the, you know, risks or the, the encroachment, increasing encroachment we're seeing in tiger habitats versus, as we talked about before, the, you know, the ability of tigers to breed fairly easily if left to their own devices. What does the future of the tiger population look like over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I think uh, in many ways, you know, tigers are doing well because they've received a lot of attention in the recent past. Uh, and, you know, for instance, if you look at in 2010, uh, the heads of governments of 13 tiger range countries, they came together in St. Petersburg to commit to not just halting uh, the decline in tigers, but also doubling tiger numbers. So, you know, we've already had uh, a large amount of investment in in um, in tiger conservation. And, you know, in 2022, there's going to be a new summit that's planned, and hopefully we are going to see some renewal of these commitments. So many conservation organizations have, through this process, conservation organizations and governments have, through this process, developed clear strategies for, for securing and recovering tiger populations. So we at Panthera, and uh, partnering with WCS, we have uh, our core tiger conservation strategy called Panthera's Tiger Forever Protocol. So the way we look at it is basically identify a site that's going to be the best hope for tigers, lock it down, make sure that we you know invest uh, to make sure that it stays protected. And usually this involves uh, training the law enforcement uh, people on the site, could be governments and could be a mix of governments and conservation organizations, but make sure that that place stays secure and you know we don't lose tigers because of any unnatural causes of mortality, poaching, retaliatory killing, or you know even being hit by a vehicle, for instance. That's the first thing that you do. And by you know protecting the site, you then provide those conditions which make tigers breed successfully. And as we said, you know, it doesn't really take too much uh, for tigers to breed. You just have to have the right amount of prey, which can support the population and enough prey for a female to, you know, go and hunt and raise her cubs. And if you, if you kind of make those conditions available, uh, it's possible to grow and uh, recover populations pretty easily. So I think, you know, over the next five years and or even 10 years or even longer, I think the the focus is, uh, and the focus should be identifying these sites, these sites that are the best hope for tigers, locking them down and making sure that tiger populations uh, rise. So one of the things that, you know, I was mentioning to you was that tigers are down to their, you know, last 6% of their historical habitat, uh, historical range. Uh, but even within that 6% of current historic range, uh, in fact, only 6% of that extent range 
supports about 70% of the known tiger population. So actually tigers are concentrated in a few places. And, you know, there's a, there's a list of about 40 odd so sites they're called that actually support these populations. So, you know, the, the best way forward is to just make sure that they stay safe and in time when they grow and they do well, they'll populate the landscape around them. Do you believe that tigers and humans can find a way to coexist? I think yes. Uh, I think at the at the broader spatial scale, which is, you know, at the scale of the tiger's range, I think there already is a kind of coexistence. You know, we we have 4,000 tigers persisting uh, in the midst of probably some of the highest human densities in the world in, in South Asia, for instance. So, yeah, so, you know, I think tigers are, uh, you know, pretty much already coexisting. But at finer spatial scales, at, you know, at the site, at the level of the protected areas, coexistence is a little more complicated. Uh, so tigers and humans both impose considerable cost on the existence of each other. So, you know, what promotes coexistence ends up being what are those compatible or acceptable costs uh, to either uh, of the populations, either humans or tigers. So if you kind of, you know, look at, so maybe I'll just kind of step back and kind of explain what a tiger society is or a tiger, tiger society is supposed to be. Uh, so tigers are centered around females. So the females are the ones that identify and make a home range around a place with the best prey. So they, they capitalize on areas with high prey densities or enough prey, for, not just for them, but for them to you know reproduce and raise their cubs in. So they identify these places and they kind of lock them down as their territories. And males usually kind of encompass about two or three of these females. So, you know, that, that's what makes tiger society. But at the core of this is what's important is how females survive uh, or how females perform in these populations. So when, uh, you know, you have uh, places where you have people interacting with tigers, uh, either because they're too close to human habitations or uh, people use those forests for some other resource use, what happens often is these females don't hold territories for long enough. So some of the work that I've done in Northern India for you know the last 13 odd years has actually shown that in places where people use the forests for multiple uh, uses, for in this case, it was uh, grazing uh, livestock, what ends up happening is they don't give the female tiger enough space and time to settle down, have enough prey, and be able to breed there successfully. So when tiger landscapes or tiger regions have disturbances that don't allow females to stick on, that's when you know coexistence doesn't really continue as such. Uh, another scenario could just be if you had people say come into forest area, maybe selectively log uh, a patch or something like that, and doesn't really lead to any unnatural mortality, you could still have humans and tigers coexisting. So I think at the end of it, what matters is, you know, the the nature of the disturbance really makes uh, an impact on how tigers perform at the end of it. But looking at it in the wider sense of the question, you know, tigers are conservation reliant and more so they're protection reliant. So any place that can offer them secure uh, space where they don't get poached, where 
individuals don't get uh, killed, uh, that will always remain an important thing to do. So any tiger conservation strategy should focus on having you know inviolate spaces that allow for individuals to stay safe and free. And how can someone like me, who's not a scientist, you know, don't live in Asia, you know, not in the not in the field regularly like you, help to find that balance of coexistence, or help to find the or help to protect the the areas in which tigers inhabit. So you I, know, I want to be helpful. Yep. <laughs> but I, you know, I don't have what would typically be seen are the tools to help, but, but how, again, how could I then be helpful? Yeah, I think there are many ways in which, you know, people around the world, around the globe can help tide conservation. I think the, the easiest thing that anyone can think of is financially. So, you know, donating to organizations uh, like Panthera and many others, uh, local organizations, regional organizations uh, can help a lot because we seem to be always short of funds. So that's that's something that will, you know, will certainly help. But even donations that are non-financial are really useful as well. So donation in kind of equipment, of technology, uh, this can really help organizations in many ways. The other thing that um, really helps is actually as a conservationist, and I'm talking about myself here, you know, as a conservationist, we end up wearing many hats. So, you know, one day I'm out in field doing some field work or, you know, having a nice time in the forest. But uh, there are days that I just have to come back and make sure that I'm doing my finances and I'm I'm taking care of uh, the funding for the project as well. So there are different skills that, you know, we kind of have to just learn along the way. But if, you know, if people had these skills and, you know, could help conservation organizations with these skills, either as pro bono services or through skill development programs, like, you know, having a workshop on Zoom, for instance, uh, would really help a lot. And I think there are just so many ways in which you can help. And, you know, one of the other big ways in which people can help is, you know, helping small and, you know, often not so well-known conservation programs known to the rest of the world through, you know, global outreach and communications and putting stuff out on social media sometimes. It really helps because it also uh, kind of makes the people working on ground realize that what they're doing is really important. And I think that's important as well. That's great. Those are, those are wonderfully practical ideas, shall I say. This is the, the last question. It's the question I ask everyone who's on this podcast. And that is, you know, despite all the challenges you see to, you know, such a beautiful and iconic species like tigers, you also witness just the, you know, the habitat and encroachment that occurs through human development, the diseases, the spread of diseases we talked about earlier in the conversation. In the face of all those challenges, there's still reason to be hopeful not just for the tigers, but I think for, for all of us and, and how we move through this world, shall we say. What gives you the most hope? I think, um, especially with tigers, I think, you know, the biggest hope actually comes from the fact that the countries, the tiger range countries that need to do all of the work are really taking the right steps in the right direction. Uh, countries have come together uh, you know, for the first time for a non-human species, in fact, in 2010, to save the tiger. And, you know, that, that commitment is going to continue. So I think that's, you know, those are, that's really hopeful in many ways. 
but I think what's also really, really important is that everyone does their part. And again, Tigers are charismatic. They've been able to already draw a lot of attention. So Tigers are, I would say, on, on the more luckier end of this spectrum. Uh, but I think what, what we all need to do is to do our part. And you know, I, I feel incredibly privileged in many ways to have started my career with with a positive story of recovery. You know, that's one of the first populations I recovered. Uh, populations I monitored was a recovering tiger population. So, you know, that really gives me hope that it's it's not that difficult. It's all about finding the right places, doing the right things, and and just making sure that you're doing them well. Uh, that can really see populations grow. And you know, tigers that way, as we talked about it. Uh, they, they grow pretty easily. Thank you. That was a great way to end this conversation, Abhishek. I really appreciate it. I, I learned so much just listening to you talk about the world in which tigers live and how they move through that. It's um, It was really wonderful. Thank you for your time and all your insights. Thank you, Bob. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care and we'll talk soon.